Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Eric Bolakowski. Hey, hey, hey. We have Sasha Wolf. Hello, everybody. Alan Weima. Hello from a very lovely nighttime recording for me. Adi Iyengar. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Yeah, we have a full panel today. Uh, this week, we have a special guest, and that's Louis Pilford. Pilfold. Sorry, I messed that up. Louis, do you want to introduce yourself? Let everybody know why you're uh, famous and why we all love you and all that stuff. Oh, I'm glad you all love me. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. I'm Louis Pilfold, and I have been an Elixir person for a long time now. Started about version one, but in the last three or four years, I've sort of become known as the Gleam guy. So I've been creating and working on a new programming language, which, like Elixir, runs on the Beam Birch machine. The main difference to Elixir is that it is statically typed. It's very much inspired by languages like OCaml and Haskell and Rust and that sort of thing. So trying to bring a new way of programming to the Beam. Awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, I'm a sucker for stories. So how did this come about? Were you just sitting there one day and going, Elixir sucks? Or is there something else to it? <laughs> I sort of very, well, you can sort of pull on this thread really far and go really far back. When I started writing Elixir, there was lots of tools from like the Ruby and JavaScript ecosystems that I quite missed. So I started trying mm -hmm. to clone them myself. So the first one was called Dogma, which was a linter for Elixir, which has now been succeeded by Credo. And then there was a, a templating language. And I made the first version of the Elixir formatter. So lots of projects have sort of since been succeeded by other ones, but I got there first. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. And one day I realized that all of these programs kind of look like compilers. So like if a formatter is an Elixir to Elixir compiler, a, a, a linter is like an Elixir to just metadata compiler, a templating language is this, this template to Elixir compiler. And I really loved languages. Like I'm really, I'm really interested in programming languages and how they work and you know what different things can you do in each one. I went, oh wow, I could make, I could just scrunch all these things together. And I kind of, I kind of have enough pieces to make a language. The only thing I needed to do was some code generation. So I, I did what any sensible person does when they have an idea. And I signed up to a conference to talk about this thing that I claimed I'd already made, and they accepted <laughs> it. So. I said, went, oh, okay, I better, I better write a talking on a compiler. I've got a month and a half. Off I go. And so I wrote a first version of this language, which didn't really do anything. It was just sort of like an alternate syntax for Erlang, really, which compiled to core Erlang and did all the passing that stuff. And, that, and that, I did the talk, and that was really fun and really interesting. And then I sort of put it on the shelf and didn't touch it again. But then over the next year, I just it kept sitting in the back of my mind. And I kept thinking, hmm, you know, what? Elixir is a wonderful language and Erlang is a wonderful language, but they're not perfect. Like, what, what would I like that isn't in those languages? Like, what, what could we add to the Erlang virtual machine that we don't have already? 
And those ideas kept like spinning around in my head. And then about a year, a year and a half after that or so, I I finished up my job and had a lot of free time. And I went, okay, I'm going to have another go at this. And then sort of Gleam was born. And it, it sort of started as just sort of scratching an itch and it grew into being something that is, dare I say it, slightly useful, which is quite exciting. Very cool. So Adi, you're the one that introduced us to Gleam. How did you find it? Yeah, actually, one of the talks in Boston Elixir Meetup was given by functional programming enthusiast who attends it. And I was sold right away. I mean, the REST-like syntax. And yeah, I mean, it took me a while to get to it and try it. But as soon as I tried it and wrote a web server, I'm like, I'm sponsoring this thing. Like, I love it. So I've been sponsoring it since the beginning of the year. And I I believe it'll be, it already is useful, like <laughs> Louis said, but I believe it'll be significantly more useful in, in, the, in the coming years. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you for sponsoring me. That's very kind of you. So I guess, yeah, let's, I mean, let's dive in a little bit to what's different, right? You know, you mentioned a couple of things, but yeah, what's different and why, why those particular things? So I think when people talk about things like type systems, they often focus on things like correctness and, you know, things being verifiable. And that's, that's useful. But actually, for me, that isn't what's exciting. I think programming is all about the developer experience. So, you know, what, what is it like to use this tool? Because, you know, you get, you wake up in the morning, you get, you, you got to go to your desk and work for eight hours. The tool you're using is either going to make you happy or it's going to make you sad. And I really want to make things that, you know, people enjoy using and makes their day easier. And so if we look at the way that you program in Elixir, it has loads of really powerful tools and it has really fantastically powerful tools for, for doing things like meta programming and generating code. And this is great because we can, you know, create, um, you know, really easy to use DSLs that do really powerful things. Like a great, a great example of this would be Ecto. Another one would be Absinthe. These, these libraries do things with very you know, concise, easy to use APIs that would be otherwise quite, quite complicated. Now, I think there's a trade-off here. I think that, you know, in order to get these properties, Elixir has, has we have gone with a dynamic type system. And so there are disadvantages to that. One, one of them is if you're inside a large Elixir code base and you refactor a function or a data structure, you kind of, uh, to some extent, on your own to find all the places that you then need to update to work with. Now, now that the API has changed, you need to find all the places that depend upon the API and you need to update that code. And I've just found that not so much to my liking when you compare it to languages like um, Rust, for example, which when you make a change, the compiler will say, you need to update these 15 files and then you're done. And then once you've updated all those things and it says, yes, I think that's okay then it, it probably will work. Well, you know, you've got a much better chance of it working than if you try to do that with Elixir alone. So the, the thing I really want to capture is the idea of the computer being like a pair programming partner, like who's got really good knowledge of the code base. So you make a change saying, oh, well, I want, it to, I want this to have this extra field, or I want this to be nullable, I want this to be something else. And it says, okay, that, 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 that. And you remove this big exploration stage from, from the development process, which for me, uh, makes it lower stress and you know, a bit more friendly. And and I think it's important to to realize that all of these things are trade-offs. We don't Gleam doesn't have all the nice meta programming stuff that Alexa does. And that pe- different people have different priorities. So for me, I really like having that assistance, but for other people it's not useful. And so if if we have another language that brings a different program experience to the beam, we can get even more people on the Erlang virtual machine and then we can all continue sharing the libraries and, and collectively grow the the ecosystem as a whole. At least that's the goal. Yeah, but that, that sounds super useful. I like my first experience of like a 
statically typed programming languages give this developer experience was actually Elm, which also does that. Like when you, for example, add like a new value to some type, it, it even tells you, like, okay, in this case, and in this case over there, you have to add the statement. And that was like my first, oh, wow, and this can be super useful experience. I think a lot of people have, when they think of static types, think of something like Java, which is not necessarily in that particular area. It might, might, might have been better nowadays because the last time I used Java is like six years ago. So correct me if I'm wrong there. But yeah, uh, I, I think that's a very, very cool approach to, to static types mm. and like kind of sidesteps this whole discussion around, oh, is it like, does it really deliver value or not? Yeah. And like, can't, can't we do unit testing and so on and so forth? I think that's it. So like, I was quite in a similar boat. I quite like static types because I thought they were cool. I thought I conceptually liked them. So I enjoy, used to enjoy writing Haskell rather a lot. And then I tried Elm and Rust and I went, wow, wow, they're actually, they've got this data in their compiler and now they're actually using it in a way that actually helps me. And I'm like, oh, and then I was completely sold. I went from being, I quite like both sides. I don't really mind to like, oh, wow, I really I'm kind of grumpy if I don't have this this thing telling me how to how to do my code anymore. I have to be a lot cleverer when I'm writing a different language. So as a little anecdote, I the original version of the Gleam compiler was written in Erlang. And it's not entirely because of the language. It's also because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But it got progressively more difficult to work in that code base. And it it reached a point where I need I realized I'd I'd painted myself into a corner, as it were, and I needed to make a big change to continue with what I needed to do. And I looked at the code base and I looked at the change I need to make and I went, I just, I just don't think I can do this. Like uh, the previous refactorings that have been much more, much less challenging had been a struggle. I only just managed it. And I went, hmm, what am I going to do here? So I did the thing that I'd been told and always believed I shouldn't do and threw away the entire project and rewrote the whole thing in a different language, which took a good amount of time. But once I got to the same place, it was trivial to make that same change. And, and, um, you know, because Rust is a really wonderful type system, and since then, every every change that I've I've got to make, even if I thought, oh, it's, this is going to be quite challenging, I sit down, and then a little while later, it's done, and I go, oh, okay, that wasn't so that wasn't so hard. So I, that's a really good data point for me, at least, that this for a lot of people and a lot of domains and a lot of sort of biz, business requirement sets could could help rather a lot. Hopefully. I guess a big, big part of the developer experience at the end of the day is how well the IDE supports your programming language. So I'm very curious about how what is it like actually coding in Gleam mm. and what is I the think, preferred IDE? I think you're right. The tooling is super important. And I've been focused on things like error messages and, and making it easy to use the compiler and making the compiler fast and stuff. But we've got a real black hole at the moment in that we don't have really good IDE-like features in, in the different editors. And I think that's a real shame. That's probably the number one thing I notice when I switch from Rust to Gleam. The type system is, is gives me a similar feeling in terms of like how easily I can refactor things. But I don't have all that nice stuff in my editor, like highlighting the bits that are wrong or allowing me to click on things and go to their definition or hover over things and see what types they are. That would be really useful. And it is a priority. Like we are definitely, definitely going to have all of these things but it's just not something we've had the time to build yet. In terms of what editor, I really think that people should just be able to use any editor. I, I don't really like the, the sort of jet brains approach of, well, if you want to write this language, you use this one editor and then and you know everyone else can get stuffed. So, so the plan is to implement the language server protocol in the Glim compiler 
So no matter what editor you're using, so long as it implements that protocol, you can have all the same features. So that covers pretty much everything, you know, e Emacs, Vim, NeoVim, VS Code, I think Atom and, and such can all use it together. So once we've got that, uh, it'd, be, it'd be wonderful and, and everyone would be happy, but it's not quite there yet, but it is coming. Just to continue on this arc, I'm a little bit curious of like, I mean, I don't, I don't have a clue about how you would even create such a integration or platform or, but is it, could you like take a existing integration or server for say Elixir or Rust and then adapt it? Like basically literally fork the source code of that integration and then adapt it? Or is it something you would rather write from scratch? I think the challenge of having this sort of information surface to the user is a lot less to do with actually building the, the server that you know provides that protocol and is a lot more just getting that information out of the source code in the first place. So I think one of the reasons why Rust and Elm have done so well for error messages is that when they were built, error messages were first class concern of their of their compiler architecture. So that mechanism is just there. They can surface really detailed er er errors. While if you've got an old compiler that's been around a long time, they've been they potentially have been built to you know, really focus on, on doing compiling. You know, that's the thing that they're supposed to be. And then when there's an error, it's like, oh, well, something failed. Here's a string. You know, that's all the information you get. And trying to retrofit this, you know, quite actually quite sophisticated error system in, is quite challenging. I would, I, yeah, it, it definitely makes making the compiler quite a lot harder because you do, the amount of information you need to compile something may actually be less, or at least it's going to be different than the information that you need to present a useful error. You need to work out something that, that the human's going to be able to understand. So I think because we've been focusing a lot on errors and collecting this information, I think we'll be in a, in a good place to build a language server. But I don't think we necessarily need to bring anything in to, to complete it. Now, there are libraries in, in Rust, because the Glim compiler is written in Rust, for building language protocol servers. I'm not entirely convinced that they are better than just building it from scratch using an event loop and um, a socket library and a JSON parser. But I could be wrong because I haven't looked into the protocol so much. I, I'm, I, I have faith that building this protocol, which is just like throw JSON across a wire, is going to be pretty trivial in comparison to the actual things of, okay, how do we gather and surface the information that we need in this case? Actually, um, I have a pretty big question is like, uh, I know the Elixir team has been looking into how they can actually add a type system, right? It's happened quite a few times. I'm kind of curious, like, why you guys didn't just come together and maybe make a superset of Elixir or something, right? It sounds like mm -hmm. you maybe had this question quite a few times by your smile. So, TypeScript well, Elixir. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what came to my um, mind, basically TypeScript, right? Like a superset with, with types. Yeah. So there's a, there's a bunch of reasons and a few stories in here. One of them is that when they were starting that whole type system process, I was one of two people they were talking to to actually to implement that thing. I think Eric, Eric did it in the end. The problem with adding a type system to an existing language is that there's a real friction between wanting to make it so that people can adopt the language as easily as possible with all their existing code and wanting to make the, the type system strict enough or influential enough on, on the programming style so that it provides real value. So I think if you look at um, Dialyzer, which is an example of, of leaning really far towards the, it's got to be as easy as possible to adopt, the, the things that they can provide are not super robust. Like I, it, it is useful to have Dialyzer running, especially in your editor, as you're making edits to code, but you're almost certainly leaning on your own intuition and knowledge and the tests 
rather than primarily looking at what Dialyzer is doing to guide you through, through the code base. And it's also incredibly slow because in order to be as flexible as possible, they're using incredibly expensive algorithms. And to the point where if you have code that's complicated enough, there's a point where Dialyzer just stops and it, beyond any point, it just says, yeah, you can do whatever you want from here. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just trust you. And given my, my goal was to make this thing that's like a super helpful pair program partner that helps you find all the problems and inconsistencies, that doesn't mean that that's not going to align with my, with my personal desires. So yeah, if you make something stricter, you now are in a situation where the type system is really useful. It can provide lots of guidance. But on the other hand, the majority of your code probably isn't going to type check anymore. And worse, there's lots of things in Elixir where it's just inconsistent. And that's fine at a, at, it's not inconsistent in a way that a human brain can understand, but it is inconsistent in the way that you can apply a type system or static analysis to, unless you go really far out and start using things like dependent types. There's lots of APIs where like the return type depends upon some of the inputs. There's, a, there's APIs where they behave quite differently depending on what the inputs are. There's a lot of sort of like unbounded polymorphism, which doesn't really fit to any sort of mathematical rules which is a problem if you're trying to apply a type system um, because, you know, maths and type systems don't really get those, those uh, exceptions. Now, TypeScript is a really good example because they've taken JavaScript, which is another language that has lots of inconsistencies. Maybe that's slightly too harsh a word. And they've really successfully applied a, a type system to it. But one thing to bear in mind with TypeScript is that TypeScript was created by Microsoft, one of the largest and most competent engineering teams in the entire world. And they, they put... I don't even want to imagine how much money they've poured into that thing. And they've got a huge pool of developers. And a lot of the things that they introduced in TypeScript are cutting edge bits of type theory that they have invented themselves. And they produce loads of papers off of the back of the development of, of TypeScript. And that that's fantastic and excellent. But I don't think there's a single entity in the whole Erlang and Alexa space that has that kind of resources. The only ones I can really think of are WhatsApp and Facebook but they actually, while they did try to make something similar to TypeScript, they sort of announced they didn't think it was not viable, but they, they, they didn't think it was a cost-effective way to spend their time. So they, they cancelled the project. So yeah, making a TypeScript is hard. It's much easier to make a, a new language that is designed with this in mind. Much in the same way, it's easier to get all this error information and static analysis if you build the compiler with this in mind. If you design a language with this in mind, you can make it... Um, much easier to put a type system on, but also make it so that it can take advantage of the type system in interesting ways. Well, what about interfacing between the different Beam languages, though, right? Because if you're going to interface with, say, Cowboy or Phoenix, I know that you did. I remember there was like an article or something that now you can use Gleam with uh, Live View, right? So how can you run this system but still interface and have everything work uh, in a good way? So I think that's really important. And I think if we made a language that ran on the Erlang VM, but couldn't be used easily from Elixir Erlang or couldn't easily use Elixir Erlang code. It's kind of pointless. It's like you're kind of starting from scratch, really. Like you've got the VM, but you want to have the whole ecosystem. You want, you want to play ball. So Gleam has been very much designed with interop in mind. In fact, there's probably a few things we might do differently inside the language if we didn't care about interop. But but we do. Like We love Erlang and we love Elixir. So like, you know, let's keep playing with them. So it's designed in such a way that there's no, no there's no overhead between 
Gleam functions and Elixir and Erlang functions, like they all work exactly the same. In fact, Gleam can pass Erlang that looks pretty much like a human rotor. And so you can import uh, Erlang functions. You just got to say like, there's a function called this in this module. It takes this value, it takes uh, values of this type and it returns this type. And then you can just use it in your Gleam code. Like we can't, we can't type check the Erlang or Elixir code. But we can say, okay, we're just going to trust that you've given us the right type annotation, and then off we go. So we can pull in the whole, you know, ev everything from cowboy to cowboy to absinthe to anything. And the the only problem is macros. We can't use Elixir macros, but like Erlang has the same problem. That's just not something we can do really. But the other direction is really interesting as well because we don't want to just like take from Elixir and Erlang. We also want to give back. One of one of my goals is I want to make it so when there's lots of great Gleam libraries in the world. I want it so someone who is an Elixir user can import those libraries and never have to even know that it's written in Gleam. They just look at the API docs, all these functions do these things. They don't have to install the compiler. They don't have to learn how to do some FFI stuff, none of it at all. It's just like normal Erlang code as far as they're concerned. So to that end, you know, having the runtime work the same way is really important, but also other things. So we, we generate record header files. So every Gleam data structure it outputs, a it outputs an Erlang record, and then you can import that into your Erlang or Elixir, and you can interact with it in the normal ways. Other things include, we now generate full dialyzer type specs for all Gleam code. So if you use dialyzer, you can use that to type check your, your Elixir and Erlang against Gleam, and it should all work. And Gleam, Gleam's type systems are a lot stricter than dialyzer, so ours should always be like 100% correct all the time. And we're just going to keep working on this. There is There is a a working group that's slowly making progress on like language interrupt. And I could imagine at some point in, in the future, maybe a few years down the line, we could start to see sort of type definition files in a sort of maybe a TypeScript-esque way or a sort of protocol buffer sort of way in which we say like, okay, here's, here's the type definitions. And now every language can like generate bindings to that in some fashion. So we can have, hopefully have like really, really safe, really reliable bindings between all the different languages. Okay, quick question for fun. Have you tried to integrate with LFE? No, I've not. I should do that one. That's a great idea. Oh no, I like someone has though. There's there's a there's a GitHub project called Hello Beam. I I'm afraid I can't remember who whose project it is. I think it might be one of the Elixir team, but I, it's escaping me who it is at the moment. That is just a repo with as many different Beam languages in as possible, and the tests just call one function from each. It says like Hello Gleam, Hello Erlang, Hello LFE, Hello this. So uh, I think there is at least one instance in the world of someone using LFE and, and Gleam together. Just for our listeners, if they don't know, like what's LFE? Oh, who's answering the question? Am I answering it? Uh, uh, it's misflavored Erlang. So I believe this was done by Robert Birding, one of the creators of Erlang. He, I think he's really in love with Lisp. And so he implemented the uh, Lisp on the Beam, I think just for fun. Uh, I don't know what the status is, but it's been ongoing for 20 years or something, I think for forever now. I really like LFE. It's, it's really, it's it, it, in the first version of Gleam, when I was, when it was written in Erlang and it targeted core Erlang, I uh, spent a lot of time reading the LFE compiler because it uses core Erlang and it, and it, it does a oh, except for the time checking, it does a lot of the same stuff. And it's it's a pretty it's a relatively easy read. It's, you know, if you're interested in compilers, I'll maybe have a poke around in it. So while we're talking about other languages on the Beam, um, I mean there are some other projects which also try to do some static typing on the Beam. Uh, what I can think of is like Caramel, which is like OCaml for the Beam and and Hamla, which is basically Haskell for the Beam. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Like how does Gleam compare to, to those? I do, yeah. I, I've actually got a, a, a to-do in, in the Gleam issue tracker to make a page where I just say like, you know, how does Gleam compare to all these different things? So the ones that I know of that are typed are 
the abandoned Facebook prototype for, for typed Erlang, Hamler, which is a fork of the PureScript compiler, um, Purel, which is an alternate backend for the PureScript compiler, so you write regular PureScript and outputs Erlang, Idris, Idris actually has an Erlang, has an Erlang backend, Alpaca, which was the typed language that I was contributing to before I started making Gleam because that project sort of like ground to a halt. This was like, okay, fine, I'll do my own one. Is that all of them? Oh, yes, and Caramel, of course, which we already mentioned. So the with the exception of the the two abandoned projects in that list, which are Facebook's one and Alpaca, they are all derivatives of another language, another language's compiler, which is interesting because it means you can suddenly get a lot further. Like you have to do, if the only thing you're doing is taking an existing compiler and you're putting another CodeGen module on it, perhaps as a plugin, or maybe you fork the whole compiler, you only need to make the CodeGen. But so you can get, you can sort of get to market a lot faster as it were, but I'm not, well, I'm, I'm slightly biased here, but I'm not sure that's the optimum way to do it because although you've got a lot less work to do, you have a lot less control. You can't design a language with the Erlang ecosystem in mind. The only thing you can really do is trying to make the existing language fit as well as possible. So if you look at the kind of code that Hamler and Purell and Idris generate, it's very complicated in comparison, in comparison to the kind of Erlang that you would write. And to use it from Erlang would be really challenging. So as an example, PureScript uh, is, a, is a curried language. And so although they all are actually, they're all curried languages. So all functions only take one argument. And if they need another argument, they return a function and then you call that function again. And so if you, if you in, in those languages, they sort of hand wave it away and it, it makes it look like it all sort of magically fits. But in, in Erlang or Elixir, if you tried to call those functions, you would have to do loads of just juggling all the different functions about and calling it in a strange way that doesn't look very friendly. And there's also a bit of a performance cost to it, which for me just isn't really appealing, you know? I want people to, I want this to integrate really well rather than being, it's technically on the same runtime, but you, we, we can't play together. You know, we can't share things quite so easily. The other thing is that I don't think all these compilers have all the sort of diagnostic, the error and user experience things that I would like. I would really like to build something that has better tooling and better error messages and is easier to use than all of them. We're not there yet, but I think we're in a, in a position to get there in, in, you know, in the next few years. And, and also, if you make big changes to these compilers, you are maintaining a fork of an existing compiler code base for a programming language. There's going to be loads of code there that you don't know, possibly built for things that you don't really care about. It's going to be a lot more challenging to maintain. And I sort of wonder, I don't, we don't have any data on this, but is it going to be harder to maintain that versus maintaining a compiler that's built for just this one thing in you know, five, 10 years' time? Who knows, really? But... Um, I speculate Gleam might even out a bit um, as, as things get older. Yeah, well, well, technically, Gleam is not only built for Beam, right? Because very recently, you also got the ability to compile to JavaScript. But... Yes, so yes, that's true. <laughs> well, I think that Beam is the reason why Gleam is interesting, really. There's lots of languages that compile to JavaScript. I think the whole JavaScript thing is more, it's, we're not trying to sort of go, hey, JavaScript people, come on over. You know, there's a reason you should use us instead of, of um, TypeScript, which, because, you know, that would be bonkers, frankly. Why would you use this project? So there's loads of typed languages in JavaScript. But I, I think it much more of like, hey, here's a nicety. If you like, if you're already a Gleam user and you like Gleam, here's a way you can use Gleam in other places. You know, it just opens some doors for, for us. It's like a little value add. One thing I'm particularly interested in is building a, a sort of a Gleam playground. I don't know if you've used like the Go, the Try Go or the Rust playground or 
Um, lots of JavaScript frameworks have similar things like the Svelte tutorial. It, you can open a browser and then you've just got a code editor and some examples and it steps you through a little tutorial. So I want to be able to build the same sort of thing by compiling the Gleam compiler to WebAssembly, putting that in the browser, having the output JavaScript and then evaluating the whole thing on your, on your computer. So it'd be really fast and I don't have to run a fleet of build servers that executes unsafe code in case you decide to write some crypto miner in, in Gleam and put it on my server. Yeah, and me, me, oh man, you were going to make me rich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was mostly pulling your leg there, but uh, just just that I had to think of that, that this was a new development in Gleam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's probably kind of like how we we abandoned Elixir script project, which also tried to compile Elixir to JavaScript. But I think like it has been abandoned for quite a while now. So like, I can see why that why that would be useful. Like one thing I'd like to ask you. You mentioned that there are certain certain things like an Elixir and an Erlang which are very hard to type, which is also the reason why, for example, the WhatsApp typed uh, Erlang project basically was cancelled in the way they tried to do it. Do you have like some examples? I mean, I can think of like the whole Gen Server stuff, right, which becomes yeah. hard to type. Uh, like from what I understand, Gleam is like you're still working on on finding a proper abstraction there, or like what what's the the status in Gleam and like the whole OTP situation like how can you use otp from gleam or is that something which is still in the working so the otp is a hard one because the the apis are not at all designed to be typed at all and because of this for you know you you just you can't make a type safe version of gen server using the gen server api with any type system that i know of and the people have tried this for a long time and i think that's why i've heard this a lot and I, maybe you guys have as well lots of people say you can't type otp it's not possible and I, I sort of believed that at first, and now well, I just I just ignore that, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep working on this. But o- over the last few years, I sort of realised that I think you can type OTP. The thing you can't type, can't type is the Gen Server API. So we now have a Gleam OTP, which isn't the same thing. It doesn't have Gen Server. We've got our own abstraction called Actor, but it does this. If you write down on a piece of paper the things that Gen Server does, and you write down a, on a piece of paper the things that Actor does. They do the same thing. And we've got supervisor and it does the same thing as the Erlang supervisor. The only thing that's different is the API. So all the things you can do in, in, in Erlang's OTP, you can do in, in Gleamson, with the exception of, of uh, naming, because names are global immutable, uh, sorry, global mutable implicit states. And you just can't type those. Like, I think we all talk about immutability, but actually if you think about names, we're using all these global variables all the time. Like, maybe we shouldn't do that. Anyway, that's a slight tangent. But the the cool thing about the Gleam OTP and regular canonical OTP is that they share the same um, interface under the hood. A Gleam a, a Gleam actor can be put in an Erlang supervision tree, and in fact, the the way that the way that Gleam OTP sends messages conforms with the sort of gen structure that it underlies all of Erlang OTP. It's it when you send a reply to a gen server call. The, it works exactly the same way as, as when an actor sends a reply, a Gleam actor. So there is actually a call that can be typed. And the nice thing about Gleam's OTP in compared to all the other OTPs I've seen is that in my, things like Purell and um, Apaca and stuff, is the ones in those languages, they work by, they take, they take gen server and then they write some sort of FFA, FFI bindings on top of them. And they make like a type safe interface, but the but the abstractions they built are not powerful enough to actually implement Gen Server from scratch because like Gen Server is not built into like the Beam or anything. It is a load of Erlang code, and they can build they can build this thing in, in a way that is as safe as you can do in Erlang. I wanted to be able to do the same thing. I wanted to be able to start with send receive 
a link and monitor and then build everything from the ground up. So that's why I think Gleam OTP is really interesting. We have those four primitives, maybe one or two others, I can't remember. And that weighs in at about, I think it's like 130 lines of Erlang as the core. And everything up, everything up from there is built using pure Gleam. Uh, without any cheating so it has um, you know supervisor and actor and, and task and all these things they're all you know from the ground up type safe which i think is really exciting because to me that says we've actually found a a, a a type safe abstraction of similar expressive power you can actually do all the same things in that hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So basically, like you, we rebuild OTP in a, in a type safe manner. Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's, and it's compatible with the protocol level, so you can like put the things in different supervision trees and send messages the same way and all that stuff. That's pretty cool. Like That's pretty cool. No, no one's really using it yet, so like, it's, there's probably some horrible problems in it that no one's discovered, but uh, I think it works from all my experience. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to it. ask, like, is it used in production? Or do you recommend to use it in production? Is Gleam I would, used in I would. production? Gleam is used in production by a few places. I'm not at the moment because I don't have anything in production. <laughs> I, use it for, I use it for my scripts and stuff, but I'm not sure that counts. People think web servers when you, when you say production. Uh, Gleam's used in production a bit. I would, I personally would probably feel quite comfortable putting Gleam OTP in production. If you actually sit down and read the OTP libraries, they're not very complicated. They're, it's not a huge amount of code, especially if you just look at like the paths that are really important. Like here's the main success path. Here's the main error path. A lot of the other things are just like fluff and extra features and like compatibility with older versions of OTP. Once you strip all those things out, it's quite small. And then if you read the Gleam one, it's actually quite similar. So yeah, yeah go for it. Why not? I mean, what's the worst that happens? It just crashes and then your Erlang supervisor restarts it, right? So I know you also attempted to, or I want to say attempted because it implies you failed, but there was a, <laughs> uh, there was some effort put into writing like a web framework, Midas. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And I think you you guys realize that maybe it's not needed. You, mm. Do you want to talk more about just like web development, Gleam, and how to you know get yes. started? Yes, yes, yes. Great thing to touch on, I think. So my, Midas is made by Peter Saxon. He's the guy who made Ace, the and what's the other, Racks as well. So like the alternative to Plug and Cowboy, and like the first HTTP two server releaser. He's a great guy. And so like you know that's kind of his hello hello world. He makes a web server and a web framework. So we had a pure Gleam. HTTP 1.1 server and a and a web framework. And he immediately put Gleam into production because he's that kind of guy. And I think he realized quite quickly that for what he was doing, he didn't need a he didn't really need a web framework. He could just write the code he wanted to. And from my point of view, I'm not at a point with everything else that I feel like a web a web framework is the most pressing thing. I'm still working on things like so we use rebar at the moment, which is a really good build tool but I think we could make a better one actually understood Gleam. We're kind of tricking Rebar into compiling Gleam and it works, but like it doesn't work very well. And that's not Rebar's fault. That's because Erlang and Gleam compile in different ways and Rebar's not designed to compile something that works the way that Gleam compiles. So I'm want, I want to make, you know, I'm, I'm focused on that build tooling because, you know, if we're going to have a, a web framework or a build tool, I know which one of those two things I want. One of them is a lot more useful to everybody. So I, I do think, but I do think in future it'd be really useful. I think if you look at all these languages like Haskell and OCaml and PureScript and stuff, I think they will have this this sort of like hole 
in the developer experience that languages like Elixir and Ruby and Python like really feel like where is that framework that tells you like here's how you make here's how you make a web app really quickly and it, we've got like 95% of everything you want so like we bring you the 95% and you bring the 5% and you make a product really quickly why don't type languages have this i think the only one i can think of is like scala has the play framework you know let, let's try and get that same experience let's get this like super productive you know developer oriented convention heavy web framework i don't think there's any reason why you can't do this in a type language i think it's just that a lot of the places that a lot of the people who work with or, or maintain things for type languages are just more interested in other things but no i think gleam is all about productivity and developer experience so yeah I, in future we definitely want to have a web framework whether it's going to be descended from midas or whether that stays a sort of like interesting historical project i don't know we would definitely have something here one day you're talking about a lot of one days we're going to have this one day we're going to have this I'm curious, what things are you working on adding to Gleam now? And where do you see the language itself ending up? Because it sounds like it's still mm. changing. The thing about making a language is it like takes a long time. <laughs> Just bashing your head against a wall and very slowly that wall starts to crumble. So we have to think, we have to think, you know, in the, in the medium long term, a lot of things, if we try and Think about just what we're doing now. It's it's easy to burn out. So the good thing the good thing is that Gleam is in a place where like I feel the language is probably pretty close to what it's going to be forever. We've got all the core things down, and we can write useful programs in it. You know, whenever I'm writing something and I'm not working for a company that wants me to use a particular language, I'm using Gleam. All my personal stuff's in Gleam. There are people writing. Um, there's been multiple businesses made using Gleam. That's quite exciting. So I think the language is, is productive and useful. And there's a few things we want to add, but they're all sorts of things that we can add in like a backwards compatible fashion. They're more like additions rather than big changes. So that's quite heartening. So now that we now that I feel like the language is largely built, I'm focusing on tooling. So the thing I'm working on at the moment is, well, there's a few things I'm working on at the moment. There was the JavaScript backend, which was originally contributed by uh, Peter, actually, who, who made Midas because he needed it for his business. So he made, he, you know, he made it, and I polished it off with him and we, we incorporated it in. That's been really useful. I've been finishing off porting the standard library over to JavaScript. So everything works the same way there, which has been, been a lot of fun, actually. And I'm also working on building this, this mythical build tool. And the meat of that task that's remaining is because we can, we, can, we, can, you know, we can compile code and we can output Erlang and we can run it and all this sort of stuff. The main thing that's missing is the ability to pull. Now, we can also pull depths from hex. The problem we can't, the thing we can't do is uh, work out all of the the versions that you list a few versions, then we work out what the versions of the entire tree should be. It turns out this is a really difficult, like really complicated computer science sort of question. And there's a few easy easy ways to do it from a compiler point of, from a from like a build tool point of view, but I'm not really satisfied with things that are easy, but then your users just have to deal with something that's a bit substandard forever. I want something that everyone just says, oh, that is good. And if we get this right this first time, then that will do us, you know, forever. I Luckily, some people have sort of like come up with a really good solution to this. There's an algorithm called PubGrub, which was invented by the Dart build tool maintainers. And luckily for us, the Rust build tool uh, maintainers have implemented it and they've released it as a library. So we're sort of uh, taking that library and converting it over to work with the Erlang ecosystem. So it's, it's sort of nearly there, but we're sort of piecing it together. After that, I, well, I've also got the um, compiler working WebAssembly. So we'll then build the interactive browser-based tutorial that I sort of mentioned earlier. And then after that, you know, it's possibly a language server. 
possibly something else. It's all it's all supplementary things. It's not things that are going to change the way that Gloom code works. So you you you're not expected to have to rewrite everything in, in two years when it suddenly decides it needs like classes or something like that. And is there like a version 1.0 inside where you say, okay, if we have this done, then then I can say this is like Glee's in version 1.0, and now it's like specified as production ready, basically. So. Mm. What are the major milestones? I, I don't. I don't think I have a set of things that where I say like this is ready. I I don't know what that would look like, and I think with these sort of projects that are going to be so foundational to so many things, if they're successful, or it might just gleam might fade away over the next five years. Who knows? So I'm, I'm going to keep working on it. We'll just see what the community does. It's very very easy to add things. It's very easy to like make guarantees and it's very hard to remove things and so and once you've committed to a version one you know you realize there's a problem what are you going to do so i'm not rushing towards anything it's much easier to sort of think long term with these things and if you have an idea well let it stew for six months and, and see what comes out so at some point we'll have a version one and we'll guarantee some degree of stability well total stability then but you know when that might be i don't know but then people seem to be quite languages these days don't, don't seem to do version one like elm has been around for a long time pure has been around for a long time and there's lots of companies very happily using this in production and they don't have version one yet so i'm not really sure what what, what impact that makes but um we, yes we, we will get more we will get more stable as we go along i don't know when that number one's going to show up though Fair enough. how's the testing like uh, just you know testing mm. i know there was a there's an assert and the, I know there's a gleam shirt. Is that what it's called? Mm, yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, it's it's one I've been thinking about a lot actually. One of the things that's been really unexpected and useful about adding this JavaScript backend to the compiler is it really highlights all the places where we've cheated. There's there's a lot of things where we've just gone, oh here we're just going to use the Erlang FFI, and that's fine because in Erlang you do all these naughty things. So like we we have this should module with things like should equal and should be true and you know that sort of thing. Which just is a wrapper around the the Erlang e unit assertion macros, which has worked. And for test discovery, we've used e units built in one. So it, it, at runtime introspects all the modules inside the test directory, all of them, I can't remember, all of them actually. And then it looks for functions of a certain name and then it generates a, a sort of uh, piece of code that runs them. None of these are things you can actually do in Gleam because Gleam doesn't have these runtime introspection things. It's all completely static. And so suddenly when you moved over to a language that, you know, moved over to a different language doesn't have this tooling, you can't use EU with JavaScript. You're sort of wondering, hmm, do we build the same thing, same cheating thing in JavaScript? Or is this somewhere where we should really be able to do this in Gleam? And it kind of reminds me of this OTP thing, you know, we could wrap gen server or we could try and find some core primitives that allow us to do what we need to do. And I'm a lot, I'm a lot less further down this line with, I'm nowhere near as far down this line with uh, testing as I am with OTP. So I don't really know what the answers are yet. I think one of the things I'm interested in that languages like Go and Rust do is that they have some degree of the test discovery and assertions and stuff built into the language but then you can like expand upon that you can bring your own runner or you can bring your own extra assertion matches and stuff like that so i'm wondering if if gleam has a concept of a test so rather than saying like function this is my test and then do some testing inside they will have like test this is my test and then we can use the compiler to to gather all those up and give them to you in in a list or something with some metadata attached to each one and then you can decide how you want to run them assertions are also quite interesting because a lot of assertion libraries uh, you know we really care about errors and it's not just type errors we also care about getting good diffs and things in your unit tests 
And so a lot of these, a lot of these things, you like runtime introspection, able to like work out what the data is going to be and, and diff them. That's really interesting. And it's not something you can do in Gleam without reaching into FFI again. So I'm wondering, it, but we do have this assert concept. We've got a keyword called assert that allows you to sort of do unsafe pattern matching. I wonder if that's something we extend. So, you know, we can go even further than you can do with runtime introspection. We could actually provide things that are erased at runtime, like type information or, or the original AST or the original source or something like that. Much in the same way that Elixir does, but exactly what that is, I don't know. It's a really, it's a really interesting one. And first, if anyone has any ideas, I'd love to hear them. I mean, a simple one would be like what you said, like uh, in Rust, I don't know if they call magic comments, but the are they called attributes or something? Like uh, you can, mm, the pound yeah. way to describe. And it also allows you to not just add, like describe that this particular function is test, but also add metadata configurations to that. It could add like a, a different level of mm. runtime power to Gleam, not just for tests, but, you know, configurations as well. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. And it attributes are really interesting because like if you make a if you make a concrete syntax that is like this is a it's just the word test. There you go. That's that's but if you make a test by writing the word test, people look at that and go, oh that's okay, that's test. If you make an attribute sort of thing, people go, okay, so what other attributes are there? Can I make attributes? How do I read the attributes? Can I change the attributes? You know, it looks like a much bigger feature. And so that's that, you know, it's that same thing of like, it's easy to add. It's very hard to take away. If we give something that looks generic, people are going to want to use it. And then lots of places in future, like, well, I want to be able to do this. Can I add a new attribute? It's like, oh, do we want, do we want to do that? I'm not sure. So it's, I'm very interested in attributes, but I'm not sure what the other use case would be. So, but one really good thing about the compiler so far is that whenever we've had a breaking change in terms of syntax, we have used the, we have made it so the compiler can rewrite the old AST into the new AST. So we, we, for example, we released a, a update where we changed the syntax for tuples, really simple one. If you, if you ran Gleam format, because there's a formatter built into the compiler, because I love formatters, um, it would convert all the old ones to the new ones. And we could do the same thing. Like we could start with a specialized um, test syntax, for example. And then if in future we say, oh, actually, we don't use the test syntax anymore. We now have these attributes because we've worked out that they are generically useful and possibly part of a future metaprogramming feature we have or something like that. So cool, attributes are good. Run the formatter. It will convert all of the tests into functions of attributes. So we can do those sort of things, providing you can work out, you know, providing those things are isomorphic, you can actually convert from one thing to the other without losing information. We can uh, programmatically rewrite the code, which gives a bit more flexibility to experiment. Yeah, one thing I'd like to add here is that uh, when I first started with using Elixir, actually, I found it very interesting when I digged into how XUnit was working, which is like the built-in testing framework, right? Because as far as I know, XUnit actually builds everything like in user land. Like there's no compiler magic to XUnit, which like the user can't use themselves. And I found that always very, very compelling. And I, I think um, it, it would be cool to see something similar in Gleam, if at all possible, where like the Gleam compiler doesn't do like any magic thing and, and finds out, okay, maybe I test stuff and I have to, to deal, uh, handle it differently here. But um, to, to give like maybe people the option to say, okay, we have this built and test thing, but it's you could write this yourself, right? Like nobody would stop you from writing it yourself. So you give all the tools of, of building something like that also to users to come up with maybe something better. So yeah, I, I think that that could be like a good inspiration for for like how how to do tests in Gleam when, when looking at how Elixir does it. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree that, and that, that's why I think there's this real, there's a real challenge of working out where these lines lie. And so, so another another thing that we realised with the, the sort of having that JavaScript backend is that in the way that you'd write a job, if if you just wrote a generic test runner that would work on every language, it's going to be suboptimal on probably both JavaScript and Erlang because something like so performance critical as your tests. You know, you really want this to run as fast as possible because that's a huge impact on like what your developer experience is like, what your build process is going to be like. You probably want to have a, a specialized one for each one of those things. And it's something that the community is going to do a much better job than, than you know, than I'm going to be able to do. So we want to give people um, as much power and responsibility to, to make things better as possible. So we just need to think really carefully about what these APIs are going to be. The, the the Elixir ones are quite the the, the Elixir X unit APIs are actually quite conservative. There's like a huge amount of power in the in the Elixir compiler and macro system that you can draw on, and it doesn't even use that much of it. So you know maybe we could find a similar a similar sort of line. It would have to be a quite a different mechanism because we don't have those same metaprogram capabilities at the moment. But those sort of lines are really nice, I think. Actually, funny that Sasha mentioned uh, Xunit because the only side project I have that uses Gleam, which I use in my production at least, I test through Xunit because it's a it works with the Elixir applications. I bring the module in and I wrote tests in Elixir for that, which is why I was asking the question. But but yeah. <laughs> For people listening, you can always test Gleam using Elixir. Maybe you should write a blog post on that, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> we can we can invite you to this, to this podcast and then you can speak about it. <laughs> uh, there we go. <laughs> I think you, you've probably got the... I think that is actually the best option at the moment for Gleam code and probably the state of the art is to write your tests in Elixir just because Elixir's tests are so much better than anything in other, any of the other languages on the Beam at the moment. And I hope we can get something comparable to that. But right now, if you're in a project that has Elixir, yeah, probably use the Elixir tests. We don't pull in Elixir by default, I think. Um, we only want it to depend upon the runtime. Okay, so Erlang, comes, Erlang and some of the libraries come for free with the runtime, so we can leverage those. But asking people to, to, to bring Elixir into their projects when they're not a, if they're just an Erlang user or they're just a Gleam user, that's that's a bit of a harder sell. So we certainly can't do that just yet. Very cool. This is cool stuff. I think I want to go write my own language called Twinkle now. <laughs> that, that's that's the other thing that's a, sorry. Yes, you, you should definitely do that. It's really fun. And one thing I'd really encourage everyone who's who's possibly interested in languages or compilers, even if they don't have a computer science background, which I don't, just have a go. It's 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 a, it's a lot more straightforward than you might imagine, and there's a lot of fun to be had. Or if you want to work on Gleam, send me a message and we can hack on the compiler together. Awesome. Yeah, actually, I, I may take you up on that because I've been wanting to get into Rust, but I haven't had a project that. I really want to get into. So maybe this is a good excuse to uh, get into it, right? Help me get more into uh, the beam and more into Rust. That, that's true. Like, like Alan, Alan, like the picks at the end of the show, we always do picks, and Alan is always picking like Rust books. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep. Speaking so of that, I, that's one of my picks today, actually. <laughs> nice. So I'm wondering, real quick, do you have any resources that you recommend if people want to get into Gleam? And then I'm going to ask the same thing about getting into building their own compiled language hmm. so i really want gleam to have amazing documentation but it's not, it's like, it's not quite the right time yet we've got some we've got some fairly basic documentation really that if you go on the website and click on documentation there is a section called language store that takes you through all of the concepts of the language and then um, there's also a set of cheat sheets so there's like here's just like a whistletop tour of all the things you'd need to know for gleam if you are an erlang user or if you are an elixir user 
or there's an Elm one. I forgot what the other ones are now, but we're, you know, just so you can quickly reference them. The thing we don't have, which I would really like, is a much more in-depth tutorial that would take you through not just Gleam, its constructs, but also like kind of functional programming from the basics and like concurrency from the basics, the kind of things that you can find in the official Elixir tutorial or some of those you know, excellent Elixir books are out there. We want to get the same sort of thing. So if you're an Elixir Erlang user, there's probably enough information there for you to be able to start writing programs because actually the languages are not too, di not too different. But if you're, you've only written, it, maybe if it was your first programming language or your second, or you've only written C or you've only written Java, it might be quite challenging a lot of the concepts because functional programming is quite different. Nice. Oh, and, uh, and for, for uh, Alan to write his own language? Right, so writing your own language. So I'm, I, there's some really good projects out there, but I think there's a bit of a lack of ones for the type systems, which I think is a real shame. So if you're interested in making compilers, uh, the, a cute introduction is a project called the Super Tiny Compiler, which is a tiny single file JavaScript compiler that turns, I think, a Lisp syntax into a sort of C-like syntax. And it's got, it's mostly comments and a very small amount of code. And you can read through it in, in, in an hour and sort of go, oh, okay, so that's how it works. And you just go, oh, it's just string, man it's just string manipulation. Okay, cool. And from there on out, there's a few really excellent books. One of them is called Understanding Computation by, oh, I'm going to get his name wrong. Is it Tom Stewart, I think? Mm -hmm. And another one is Compiling to Assembly from Scratch. Compiling to Assembly from Scratch by, I'm afraid I've forgotten the author's name, which is really good and goes a lot more low level, but also managed to be really accessible. So I recommend both of those things. There's lots of famous books like The Dragon Book, but I always found them a bit intimidating, really. I think the real thing is just go out and try things. A surprisingly large amount of building a language is actually designing the language. Like building a compiler is actually not, it's time consuming, but it isn't super complicated or rather once you've got the basics down you can actually go a surprisingly long way with that the difficult bit is like designing a language that is actually worth using you know designing a language that people would enjoy or like in any way or like why, why does this language need to exist these are all interesting questions that you don't even need a computer to ask so you can think about those things a lot type systems is harder i really wish i had a good book or website where i say go read this and you can do type systems. I really struggled picking up. And if anyone has any good ones, I'd like to know. Ones that get recommended a lot, which I think are really good, would include, a, there's a book called Types and Programming Languages by Michael Pierce. It's fantastic, but I feel like after reading it, you don't feel like you can make things. <laughs> like it, it, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things missing there, I think. It's, it's, it's a real wealth of information, but it, it doesn't have that sort of like nice practical get make a thing that I like to go for. And also the first two chapters are very maths heavy. So maybe skip those if you if you don't have a some higher education in maths like I don't. Awesome. I'm gonna post a an interview we did on Ruby Rogues with Tom Stewart about understanding computation. We actually read the book and then interviewed him. That's mm. fantastic. I'm I'm definitely gonna check that one out. And yeah, the, a lot of great advice there. I am gonna push this over to Picks, um, mostly because I have a hard stop in about 20 minutes and I'm gonna make sure we're done. But this has been awesome, and I'm really looking forward to diving in and seeing what I can build with Gleam. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. 
I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Yeah, let's go ahead and do the picks. Eric, why don't we start out with you? All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, recommend the uh, Remarkable 2. It's a e-ink tablet, which is really, really great. I have the uh, Generation 1, personally. And yesterday I was visiting a friend and he showed me the Generation 2. And it's just, yeah, next level and sleeker and nicer. It's like there are pitches that you can simply write on the tablet and that it has no extra features, which is actually a really good one. So it's like, imagine an iPad with, you know, uh, the stylus, but really dumbed down to only be about reading and writing. And also you can put your PDFs over to it so you can highlight and annotate stuff. And really the most amazing part of it for me is like the stylus itself really feels like a fountain pen that you're writing. So it makes writing a drawing and it's really, really good. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and recommend that. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Nice. How about you, Sasha? What are your picks? Uh, this week, I'm, I'm going to pick a book called A Type of Programming. And it's a very long book, actually. It's still in the works, I guess. And it goes at programming from a different angle, like from a very holistic point of view and from a very foundational point of view. Like the very first chapter actually asks, okay, like, what is programming? And to ask, answer this question, we have to define what is a program. And it kind of accidentally teaches you Haskell along the way. And it's something I've been <laughs> enjoying reading. And it's, it's a certainly like, it's the kind of book which like makes you feel like your brain got fried, but in a good way. And it's definitely the most interesting programming book I've, I've read in quite a while. So yeah, A Type of Programming by Renzo Carbonara. Awesome. Adi, what are your picks? I guess staying on the theme of writing a language, I actually attempted to write write a language in 2018. I spent about 800 hours in, into that and then decided to start a company, so I had to trash that. But one book that really helped me make progress after wasting hundreds of hours was uh, Engineering a Compiler. It covers a lot of new concepts as well, like type systems, and uh, it, it had a very good section on tail call recursion, which made made it a lot easier to implement compared to other books. Um, I also want to mention a conference, uh, another another conference coming up, Code B SF. Again, like last podcast, great way for getting of getting a free ticket for a conference is by volunteering. Of course, you have to do some work, uh, but that also helps make the conferences better. So volunteer. If not, then just attend the conference and support the community. Awesome. Alan, what are your picks? So as I already hinted before, my pick is, again, uh, Rust-related. So I don't have the event for the live stream up yet. But uh, here's the YouTube channel for my own podcast. Sorry to kind of plug my own podcast over here. But it may, some of you guys may know that I have my own Flutter podcast. And there's quite a lot of people who love Rust because of, you know, all the things you can do with it. Very type safe, everything. You were basically, uh, other people talking about it, you heard me talk about it many times. But the one thing that Rust is really lacking is a very excellent uh, UI system, right? A GUI system uh, you can use with Rust. And so a lot of people are turning to Flutter for that. So a lot of people are mixing Flutter and Rust together. And so we're actually going to be having a roundtable with two other guys who are known for mixing Flutter and Rust together 
to kind of exchange ideas and talk about how you can integrate everything. So uh, if you're interested in Flutter and or Rust, especially integrating the two, I invite you guys to please check it out, the live stream, and you'll have the uh, final podcast out later on after that. Nice. I want to blend the words and call it something like flustered, but anyway. Yeah, too bad spelt is already taken, right? So I had to come up with another name. <laughs> Actually, the one guy called it RID. I think it was R-I-D-D. I forgot what it meant. Rapid something, something. I forgot. Very cool. But yeah, I've, I've checked out Alan's podcast. It's pretty good. So go check it out. I'm going to throw a few picks of my own out here. I recently read twice, actually, a book called The Prosperous Coach. And I'm kind of leveling up the the coaching stuff that I'm doing. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. It's going to be at just go to devchat.tv slash coaching and uh, you'll be able to find the stuff that I'm putting together there. I really just enjoy helping people out and coaching people. So, but beyond that, I feel like the community can always use more voices, right? Some communities don't have any voices or don't have enough voices. And so if, if we can help people have the confidence and get excited about putting their content out there, you know, sharing their expertise, whether you're new or not, it's just, it's kind of an exciting deal, but the book was really good as far as kind of walking you through how to do coaching and how to set up your coaching practice and things like that. So I really, really enjoyed that. So I'm going to pick that. And then I've been kind of playing with two other systems that do fairly similar things. And so I'm going to shout out about both of those. One of them is Kajabi. Kajabi just added podcasting support. So you can add podcasts to your Kajabi system. And I've been playing with that. And I'm really liking the way they have things going together. There are a couple of things I wish they had that they don't. But for the most part, it's it's pretty solid stuff. And then the other system, so Kajabi also lets you do like landing pages and courses and stuff like that. But I signed up for a lifetime access to another system called Groove, Groove Digital. And it does a lot of the same things. It doesn't have the podcasting support, but it does the courses and the landing pages and all the stuff that Kajabi does. And so anyway, I'm really liking both systems. I'll put links to both systems in the, the chat, if you're looking at creating courses, creating content, selling a product, things like that, uh, digitally, they they really have knocked it out of the park and I'm really liking it. So I'm going to pick those. And then finally, so I filed an extension on my taxes and now I'm in a hurry to get the bookkeeping finished so that I can file the taxes. And unfortunately, like every competent book, I've had some crappy bookkeepers, so I'm a little picky, but every competent bookkeeper I can find is booked out and busy. And so I've had to do my own bookkeeping. And QuickBooks is a giant pain in the butt to try and figure out how to make it all work, especially if you're doing profit first, which is the system that I use to keep you do my stuff. And so I've been using Xero, X-E-R-O. And so if you're looking for a, a system that'll let you send invoices and manage your, uh, your expenses and stuff like that, then go check them out. That's xero.com. And yeah, I've kind of fallen into a rhythm where, yeah, I can just, I can just get through that stuff real quick and I'm really liking it. It's also forced me to look at some of the, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm still paying for that. And so I've canceled some subscriptions and stuff, which is handy, but yeah, uh, I'm going to pick that as well. Louis, what are your picks? Well, I saw, I've picked a whole bunch of programming books already, I think, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I can pick one, one more book, which will have to be this one. The Little Typer, because I think it's made in the style of, of an older book called The Little Schema, which I haven't read. But it's a book about learning a whole bunch of things about dependent types, which is really interesting. But what makes it really cool is that it's sort of written in dialogue. 
Like the whole thing's written as a conversation mm-hmm. between two people and it's quite playful and it's quite fun. And I've never read something that's so dense, but also sort of, yeah, fun. And it, you read a chapter and your head hurts and you've got to sit down for a bit. I've enjoyed it. And then you come back to it the next day. So yeah, check it out. The little typer. The other, nice. the other, the other pick, uh, Gleam, Gleam's pretty good. You should all try Gleam. <laughs> if you're interested in Gleam, drop by the Discord server and and check out the documentation and say hi. There's lots of lovely people who, who will help you out. And if you really like Gleam, you can consider sponsoring me on GitHub Sponsors and get us close to that mythical version one, which apparently we all want so badly. <laughs> nice. Uh, if people want to connect with you online, you mentioned the Discord server, but are you on... I, I guess you're on GitHub because you want to be sponsored on GitHub, but also like Twitter or other places that mm-hmm. people can reach you. Yeah, I'm 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 on Twitter as well. I've got a personal Twitter. If you want a mix of me getting excited about Glean, me getting grumpy at the English government, and uh, pictures of my cat, you can check that one out. I've also got a another one which is purely just for Glean. So if you just want to keep on top of releases or maybe the occasional interesting article or that sort of thing, you can follow that one as well. And then besides that, most of the, you know, chatty stuff happens on uh, Discord, which is a mix of mm. talking about the language, talking about just like stuff, because, you know, it's a nice bunch of people and helping each other out uh, with, you know, learning Gleam or making Gleam programs and that sort of thing. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming, Louis. This was awesome. Hey, hey guys. I got, sorry, I got just like one more, one last announcement. Sorry about that. Just before it gets too late, when I mentioned SpawnFest, it's a, a hackathon for Gleam languages. It's happening this September. So please register. And it looks like it's a lot of fun that we have some really cool judges uh, in the panel as well. So, yeah. Sorry. No, it's all good. When you said Gleam languages, did you mean Beam languages? That's exactly what I meant. Yeah, okay. I, I knew you really <laughs> said Gleam languages. <laughs> no, you, everyone, you have to you have to do Gleam if you sign up for Spawnfest, okay? <laughs> yeah. Gleam languages are cooler than Beam languages. <laughs> all right, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks again, Louis, and thanks to our panel. Uh, until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.